Hello and welcome to episode 405 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Nathan Fox. With me is Ben Olson. We are the co-founders of LSATdemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily podcast. You can be LSAT famous, share news and ask questions on our website, thinkinglsat.com. Let's see. Today is uh, May 30th, so nothing really big on the agenda. Um, June LSAT is coming up. Good luck if you're registered for that. Scores for that will be out at the end of June. Next registration deadline to look at is June 29th, which is the deadline for the August 2023 test. We've got an email here from Connor. The subject is struggling with reading comprehension. Ben and Nathan, I'm a current subscriber to The Demon and have improved my score from 149 to 162 over the past two months. My goal is the high 170s, average breakdown per section, logical reasoning minus one to minus five, logic games minus one to zero. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, Connor gave us those in reverse order. Reading comp minus 11 to minus 15. I'm a frequent listener to the Thinking LSAT and the LSAT Demon Daily podcasts. Many times I have heard the phrase that the reading comp section of the three sections on the LSAT is the closest to practicing law slash law school. I said that in class yesterday. Yeah. Uh, I said it in the context of lawyers are professional students and your job is to learn everything there is to learn about whatever the topic is in these very random reading comp passages. Yesterday, it was the comparative reading passage about purple loosestrife, which apparently is mm. an invasive species. Mm -hmm. I don't know shit about purple loosestrife, but by the time I was done reading those passages, I knew what passage A thought about purple loosestrife. They thought mm -hmm. it was a real big problem that we should do something about immediately. <laughs> and then I learned what passage B thought about purple loosestrife, which was basically this is bogus and you guys are just trying to protect duck hunters. Hmm. And I there's found always a, there's always an underlying story, right? Of motivation. Anyways. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that but that's kind of the point, right? Is that mm -hmm. I, I had no idea what was coming at me, but I read it carefully enough to figure out where the fight was going to be. I mean, the first speaker was making a case that we should have. It was something like we need integrated control of this. And I was like, holy shit, what are you talking about? Like a government program? Like nationally to try to get rid of this scourge the purple loose strife wow okay so the lawyers are going to be fighting about that for sure you know are we going to create a brand new government program that's going to try to eradicate purple loose strife everywhere in the country okay and then passage b was like all y'all fake environmentalists are really just trying to control nature this purple loose strife is not really a problem for nature it's a problem for your duck hunting yeah and the lawyers are certainly going to be fighting about that as well. So I did find that to be an extremely lawyerly type of thing where, you know, these documents arrive on your desk out of nowhere and you've got to figure out what the issues are. 100%. You have to become a domain expert in a very, very specific area. And in fact, one of my friends, I think I've told you this on the show before, he was an appellate or he is an appellate attorney. And he, I asked, I saw him at the gym and I was like, Hey, Hey man, how's it going? How's it going? He goes, Oh, it's pretty good. I'm a little worn out. 
I was like, oh, yeah, what's going on? And the, his, his, the conversation went to the fact that every time he gets a new case, he's got to learn a whole new area of law and become the expert in. And I think at the time he was looking at Arisa or something like that. But because, you know, on a, his real skill set is appealing and trying to change the law. So that's his expertise, not a particular area of law, which I actually thought was interesting. I thought maybe appellate attorneys would focus on one area of law, and I'm sure some of them do, but he, he's at one of the best firms out there. And so I imagine that his real skill set is appeals, right? How do, you, how do you do it at the Supreme Court and how do you do it at, at the circuit courts? And he knows things about that. Like, he, yes, he, he knows he, things about how appeals work. Yep. But what is the subject matter of the underlying case? Could be anything, right? Could be anything, right? Is it employment law or are we talking about environmental law, as you were just talking about, or some SEC regulation? Who knows, right? So an enormous part of his job is to be able to learn everything there is to learn in a pretty short amount of time from whatever documents are available. And mm -hmm. that's exactly what the LSAT reading comprehension seems to be testing. You know, they, they give you these documents and then they essentially say, what did it say in that document? Did you learn what there was to yeah. be learned in that yeah. document? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, not to, to drag this on too long, but we hear people all the time say, well, I find myself getting bored in reading comp. Hey, look, a lot of people get bored in reading comp, so you're not alone, but it's also something that you just absolutely need to snap out of because we're talking about 15 sentences here. This is nowhere near the level of learning that you're going to have to engage in on a daily basis <laughs> yeah. in law school, oh, let alone legal boring, practice. Just wait. Yeah. Just wait until what's coming next. Yeah. So get over it. Right. I hate to say get over yeah. it, but yeah, get over it because or get over it or get out and go do something else. Because if you can't get yourself interested for 15 sentences about purple loose drive, then, you know, in order to get the points that are going to be available for those passages, mm -hmm. then good luck being able to learn whatever you're going to need to learn on a law school exam or on a uh, after that in actual legal practice. Anyway, yeah. you know, I don't think this is actually uh, Connor's real question here, though. <laughs> okay, so Connor continues, I don't mind the RC section at all. However, that is my weakest section. I have time and a half accommodations due to my ADHD diagnosis, which brings me to the thought of, am I only succeeding on the LSAT because I have this extra time? Slash, when I get to law school, will I be screwed over on exams since I won't be as fast as, at reading as my peers? Do law schools offer testing accommodations? Also, what are some tips to reading faster in general that have helped either mm -hmm. of you in the past? Thank you and take care. Very truly yours, Connor. The thing that's puzzling to me about Connor's case is why isn't Connor doing better on reading comp given that he does have time and a half? I mean, if you can do that well on logical reasoning, minus one to minus five, well, then there's no reason why you can't do that well on reading comp. I'd love to see you in class, Connor. I'd love to talk to you about this in, uh, you know, in, in one of our classes where we're actually dealing with reading comprehension. I want to see what kinds of mistakes you're making. But your last question there, what are some tips to reading faster in general that have helped either of you in the past? 
I, I think that that really probably shows what Connor's actual problem is, which yeah. is Connor thinks that he's supposed to be trying to read fast. Exactly. Well, it's that comment plus what you just pointed out. The fact that he's doing so much better in logical reasoning shows me that when he goes into a logical reasoning passage, which is shorter, he has the right mindset. He thinks, well, I don't know if he has the right mindset, but because the passage is shorter, maybe he doesn't feel the need to read as quickly. So he actually reads it correctly. One way or the well. other, he's reading it well enough to yeah. actually solve the question. And on reading comp, Jesus Christ, he's missing 11 to 15. I mean, 15 is more than two passages worth of questions. So he's completely crashing and burning on reading comp. I'd love to see what he's doing. Like, are you finishing the sections and missing that many questions? That's that would be shockingly bad uh, in terms of accuracy. I doubt that he's only doing two passages and missing that many questions. That would be almost hard to do. Yeah, I doubt that. But I think what's happening, as I was trying to say, is that he's looking at a paragraph, right, in logical reasoning. For whatever reason, that's allowing him or giving himself permission to read slowly and accurately. Whereas right. in reading comp, he's probably seen that whole thing and thinking he's got to go faster. And it's like, no, it's it's no different. In fact, you have 25 logical reasoning paragraphs, right? In reading comp, you might have the equivalent of four paragraphs, paragraph length, logical reasoning questions in each passage. So that's only 16 paragraphs. You got to slow down and just break the reading comp passage down and tackle each sentence, each set of sentences together, just like you would a logical reasoning thing, instead of trying to do it all at once. Like, it's almost like he looks at the whole thing and gets overwhelmed, maybe. Yeah, from and I think he's racing through the passage. I don't know if he has learned some weird reading comp techniques elsewhere. He's diagramming, highlighting, underlining, note-taking, you know, all these things that we just don't recommend. He's not understanding what's actually in the passage. He's not understanding what the question's actually asking him. He's not understanding that the answer is just, well, that's what it fucking said in the passage. That's why that's the answer. And he's doing that well enough on games and on LR that I have no doubt that Connor can get over this. But it, it seems pretty obvious that his the idea that he is intimidated by RC and worried about trying to read faster is what's causing him his problem. He needs to let go of that, slow down, focus on accuracy. You got to start putting together some perfect passages, you know, one perfect passage, then another perfect passage, then another perfect passage. And if you're doing that, you're going to be already like 50% better at reading comp than you currently are. Uh, so forget the idea that you're even going to reach that fourth passage for now and focus wholly on accuracy and you're, like right now, I guarantee you reading comp is just bewildering and frustrating and impossible for Connor. And he needs to get to the point where reading comp is easy, like logical reasoning and games are for him. And the way that's going to happen is by slowing way down and just giving up on the idea of trying to read faster. It's not about that, Connor. You're not reading well enough. You're not understanding what it says. So you need to read better, not faster. Eric did some research for us. He, thank you, Eric, producer Eric, LSAT demon teacher Eric. Uh, he gave us a YouTube video here, which I have not watched, but he um, has a 
uh, summary here, which says depends on the school. Accommodations take many different forms and may include extra time or breaks in final exams. In general, law schools are quicker to grant accommodations these days than they used to be, but each school will have its own processes for requesting accommodations and thresholds for granting them. Physical disabilities are more likely to be accommodated. That's interesting. According to the law prof who made this video, quote, the legal profession is skeptical of mental disabilities, end quote. I'm going to take issue with that last claim. I don't know. I bet this law professor is skeptical of mental disabilities. I don't know if that extends to the legal profession. Um, maybe maybe he knows from some sort of study, but I imagine he might also be projecting. I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, but on the other hand, I can certainly see a judge going, what? You need more time, counsel? Because of what now? Because of ADHD? I mean, I, I don't see a judge probably being super accommodating. Um, I think that the business is going to proceed the way the, the legal matters are going to proceed the way the legal matters are going to proceed. And if you're not going to be able to comprehend what's going on, then you're probably going to lose is what's going to happen. For sure. I mean, although I don't know that that's going to happen much in court, right? Really what this means is maybe as an attorney, Connor might have to spend more time preparing his brief or something like that. Yeah. And hopefully he's totally prepared to do that. I mean, yeah. law school does use timed exams, though. And so whether you're going to be able to get additional time to do your exams, I don't know. Um, I, I still think, though, that your problem, Connor, is not actually speed. Your problem is that you're trying for speed. And because you're trying for speed, you're not actually understanding the what the passage is saying. You're skimming it and you're not really getting it. You're just Absolutely. not reading for comprehension. You're reading for I got to get to the finish line so that I can get to these questions so that I can start looking at answer choices. And then you just don't have any idea what the actual passage said, which makes the question impossible. So you got to get over that now. And I think it'll serve you well in law school, whether you do or don't get uh, extra time. We'll have a link to that YouTube video in the show notes. Anything else about this, Ben? No. This next one is from Anonymous. The subject is cross-section benefits. Hi, I'm not sure how unique this sentiment is, but have you or your students found that improving on one section can bolster your performance in others? I've seen this in my practice tests and drilling that even if I spend 80 plus percent of my time drilling LG, I still see an increase in LR and RC. I feel as though the mathematical way of approaching LG transfers well to LR specifically and to reading comp to a degree, despite the clear differences in what is being tested. This is also reflected on my dashboard scores for each section. P.S. Maybe a fresh novel perspective regarding LSAT prep. You can see your total time spent using the demon on the dashboard around two and a half days for me, which is also a feature in most video games or on their platforms. It might be fun comparing the amount of time it might take one to feel comfortable being competitive at a new game, even if it uses previously uh, previously developed skills like aim or reading comprehension. And LSAT prep. Huh. Interesting. I've been playing a lot of uh, the new Nintendo game, uh, Tears of the Kingdom. Ben, have your kids been playing that? Uh, yeah, my oldest is playing that a lot. He likes it. Um, God, it's so fucking fantastic. I'm probably over two and a half days in <laughs> of time elapsed. I haven't looked at it, but uh, I have been dumping quite a bit of time into that. And it is excellent. I just wanted to talk about it. I don't 
has nothing to do with this. <laughs> yeah, no, very cool. Yeah, well, my youngest Seth loves Zelda. He loved uh, Breath of the Wild and hmm. his birthday's coming up. So that's what he'll be getting. It's a shame that I'll never play Breath of the Wild again because Tears of the Kingdom is just bigger and better in every possible way. Hmm. Um, but God damn it, that's a just an amazing achievement. It's so fantastic. Bravo it is wild to too that they can Nintendo. get so much into that little chip right are they downloading data well on i mean top of whatever if you buy I, that game i don't even buy the little cartridges physically? anymore i have you buy one, it online sure i buy it online and i have a tiny tiny just a single tiny micro sd in there yeah so it's yeah. smaller than the cartridges even for the switch it's smaller than that and it has everything all the games on it yeah it's wild so wow. <laughs> yeah there are worlds inside that little tiny microscopic chip um back to anonymous's issue we actually have a class in lsat demon live taught by eric who was on the thinking lsat podcast a couple episodes ago and who produces all of our episodes uh eric created a class called lsat cross training and the explicit idea of the class is hey you're good at games great let's talk about the things that make you good at games and let's see if we can use those same skills and transfer them over to lr transfer them over to rc then on a different class it'll be oh you're good at reading comp okay let's see if we can use those skills and get make you better at games i absolutely think that getting better at one section can help you get better at all of the sections the question types are essentially the same you know, they're just asking you what must be true based on what you read. And that's on all the that's on all the sections. And it is always a test of reading comprehension. So there is a section called reading comprehension, but you have to comprehend what you're reading in LR and you have to comprehend what you're reading in logic games as well. So, yes, I think it's totally true that getting good on one section. Uh, that's not to say that you should only focus on one section, but time spent in one of the sections should pay some dividends in the other sections as well. I don't want to exhaustively answer that question, but do you have anything more you want to say about that? No. <laughs> the answer to anonymous's question is yes. Next one uh, is from Emily and it looks like we've got a summary here. You want to read it? Yeah. Question number one, do withdrawals count against your lifetime five time test limit? Uh, no, they do not. If you withdraw before the deadline, which is basically the day before the test, if you go to your LSAC account and withdraw, it's as if you were never registered. So it does not count against your yeah. limits. On the other hand, if you cancel or if you no show, it does count uh, on your limit. Yeah. Also, one thing to clarify here, Emily, you said your lifetime. Oh, yeah. That's five not right. test limit. You actually have a lifetime limit of seven tests, not to confuse everyone. But really, it's it's kind of like a lifetime limit of five because you are limited to five tests in five years. So for most people, most people are spending more time than that on their LSAT prep. But yep. if you, you know, you prepped a while back and then you came, came back, back to it at a later mm -hmm. point in your life. Uh, yeah, you're now going to be uh, probably over the five year. If you are over the five year restriction, then, yeah, seven times. And there's appeal process on top of that, too. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. um <laughs> And there, who knows when you took it, right? You might have taken it at a time when the tests weren't counting toward the limit. So, yeah, whatever. But for yeah. for practical purposes, you can take it five times in uh, five years or three times in one cycle. And withdrawals do not count. 
Second question, do practice test scores accurately predict how you'll score on an official test? Emily is worried that she'll sco score lower on her official test because of nerves. Um, you need to get over that, Emily, but we teach our students at LSAT Demon, we teach our students to treat their practice tests just like an official test and treat their official tests just like their practice tests. The practice tests themselves used to be official tests. I mean, they that was the official test from June 2009 or whatever it was. And, you know, it's the same content scored the exact same way. It's a real scoring scale from the real tests back in the day. So, yeah, practice test scores definitely predict how you'll score on an official test with one caveat, which is there's a lot of variance, right? From data point to data point, you're going to be accumulating scores within some range, and that range is probably wider than you think. Uh, even if you've scored 165 your last four times in a row, you're still probably an average 165 plus or minus three or four at least and frequently five or six. So it won't surprise me at all, Emily, if you score higher than your practice tests. It also won't score won't surprise me at all if you score lower than your practice tests. That's why uh, students really need to plan to take the test multiple times. Law schools only care about your highest score anyway. So there's no point being nervous. Bad scores, essentially bad scores don't count, right? But you get a bad score if you have a bad day because of nerves or because of any other reason, you just take it again. And once exactly. you realize, hey, I'm going to be able to take this thing five times. It's easy to get to that five time limit, by the way, that we're talking about. Um, it's three times in one cycle, but the cycle resets in August. So it's not very hard to take it five times. You can take it easily five times in one calendar year. If you cross that the magical reset threshold. So I think if you just treat it, Emily, as if, hey, I've got five chances at this thing. Look back at your last five practice tests. I bet there's a bad one in there. Well, who cares? Because only the highest of your last five is the one that's really going to count. So are you going to score that number every single time you take the test? No. Are you going to score that number this time you take the test? Maybe, but I don't know. So you just let go of the idea that you can control your results on any particular data point. Accept the idea that you have a range of scores. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. You treat it just like you were treating all your practice tests. And then, yeah, by the time you take it two or three or four or five times, there's going to be a good one in there. And the good one is the only one that law schools are going to care about. Yeah. And this is this is why I want you to be open to taking the test officially five times. Hopefully you don't have to get there. Hopefully you knock it out of the park by your third attempt or even your first attempt, maybe. But when I say knock it out of the park, that means when you take it officially, the score you end up getting is the highest practice test score you ever got or higher, right? I don't want people going in presuming, oh, like fingers crossed, let's hope we get it done on this first attempt. It's like no plan on taking it up to potentially five times. Be open to that idea at the very least. And then it's only when you are lucky 
and end up getting one of your highest or hopefully higher than your highest official scores on record, then, okay, now you can let go of those remaining tests as opposed to adding on official tests to your plan, right? Like, I, I just, I think people also set themselves up for failure when they go in thinking, okay, I got to do it now because I really want to be done. And I want to, I want to be done for this particular timeline. And this is why we say, you know, LSAT first, timelines later. It's so. one of the most frustrating things that any LSAT teacher is going to encounter because, you know, we have, we understand the reality of the game that's being played. The reality of the game that's being played is that you have up to five attempts at this thing in five years and only your highest score is really going to count. It's fucking stupid to, oh yeah, but nah, I'm going to be one and done with this thing for whatever reason. I mean, sometimes people are like, yeah, but I'm a competitor, you know, and I'm not going to choke on test day. And so I'm going to just get it done on one attempt or other people, like you said, Ben, are they they're coming at it from a I hate this test. I want to be done with it. So I'm just going to take it once and see how it goes. I'm going to be done with it. And it's like that is something that will make an LSAT teacher just rip their hair out because it's like, OK, so what you're telling me is you don't want to put your best foot forward. You're living in a fantasy world where you think you're going to just ace it on the first attempt. Even if you do do really well on your first attempt, the odds are very good that you're going to do better on your second or third or fourth or fifth attempt. And so you're crazy. You're just you're set. You're putting yourself at a disadvantage before you even start playing the game. You know, it's like a. Uh, don't they in like long jump, don't you have multiple attempts at the jump? I don't know anything about long jump. I think in track and field, you frequently have multiple attempts at the whatever. You know, I, I'm a pole vaulters. It's not like you just only get one shot at it. You you frequently, I think, get multiple. And then they record your highest jump. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it's like, oh, no, I, I just I'm I'm only going to do it once, though. Like, I'm good. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, bump. Oh, you get three strikes in baseball, but you're like, nah, let's just go ahead and start the count at strike two because I'm only going to need one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, you know, if I miss it on the first pitch, I'm just going to, uh, that's it. I'll just retire. I'll hang yep. up my hat. I'll go, I'm going to go back to the dugout. Cause yeah. I, you know, I'm, that's cause either because I'm a baller or because I hate baseball, but either way, it's like, oh, so you're setting yourself up at a significant disadvantage to everyone else who's taking the test. Yeah. And it, it is, aren't you frustrated by it? Like you, I'm sure you encounter it all the time, right? Like in almost every class you get somebody who's like, yeah, but I don't want to do that though. Yeah, it's a trade-off, right? Really, they don't realize what they're trading. They're trading the 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 pleasure of now, the pleasure of being done or whatever joy or satisfaction they get from not thinking that this task is now over. They're trading that for potentially over $100,000, potentially much better schools and then a lifetime of better opportunity. They just don't yeah. see that. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's insane. And lest you think that this doesn't work in the real world, uh, Matt Dumont, who was on the last episode of Thinking LSAT podcast, I don't think you guys t touched on it, but Matt took the test five times and he mm. got his best score on his fifth attempt. Yeah. And he finally scored in line with what he knew he was capable of based on his practice tests. 
And he didn't get it done on trial one, two, three or four. I mean, he did okay on some of those tests, but not as well as he knew he was capable of. And he decided to exhaust all of his attempts. He finally got it done on attempt five. And he went to law school for free. And is going to come out and practice exactly the kind of law that he wants to practice with no debt. So (laughs) it's just, you know, and it's 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 like not even hard to do that. You just have to be patient. Yeah. So it is very frustrating when people think that. And I know this is this wasn't Emily's question at all, but there are people out there who are um, really misguided with this idea that, oh, no, but, you know, and and maybe your parents are steering you down that road. Maybe your pre-law advisor is giving you some totally bogus bullshit about how law schools raise an eyebrow when people take it multiple times. Even the schools themselves say stupid shit like, well, you know, we really prefer that people only take it twice or maybe three times. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, but you also prefer people who have a good high score on record. And yeah. surely you would prefer someone who aced it on their fourth or fifth attempt to someone who never aced it on their t- two or three attempts. Sorry, I'm getting fired up about this. No, I actually think it's a very valid point And one that people don't think about very often. Sometimes the most successful pe- people in any field are also the ones who have failed the most. Like they are so damn good because they failed and then learned a lesson from that failure and then tried again. Like anyone who's top of their game has also like, it doesn't matter what you talk about. You were just talking about jumping. That also means they've jumped so many times and missed it and shanked it and went off to in the wrong angle. And it's like, okay, try again, try again. Versus those who said, oh, this isn't for me. I'm out of here. Well, yeah, that's why they're also not jumping as high. End of story. Pretty sure it, it. we can find examples of this in literally every sport. Um, yep. I, I'm not like a huge basketball fan, but I was watching game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals last night. And the Miami Heat, who managed to beat the Boston Celtics. Sorry to uh, Chris, who teaches for us. He's a big Celtics fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's going to be devastated today, I think. But, uh, you know, the Heat have multiple players, apparently, who were not drafted to play in the NBA. And how they ended up getting to the NBA finally, I don't know, but they didn't do it the typical way, which is you go play like one or two years of college basketball and then you they spot you in college basketball because you're some premium prospect and you get drafted and you go right into the NBA. These people were bouncing around in, you know, minor leagues or maybe in Europe or whatever they were doing. And somehow, though, they they had confidence that they were they they kept trying right instead of like oh well i didn't get a college scholarship so uh i'm not i'm just done or oh i didn't um i didn't get drafted so yeah i guess that's the end of my basketball career and some yeah. of these people kept playing and next thing you know they're going to the nba finals uh after not being drafted ever in the first place to play in the nba yeah because they kept going you know second effort third effort fourth yeah. fifth effort it's important yeah. Emily, you very well might score lower on your first or second or third official test because of nerves. But hopefully you'll embrace this mindset where you understand that there's just randomness in your results and some are going to be good and some are going to be bad. Unfortunately for you, only the good ones count. And so just don't even worry about it. Don't try to control it. Just go in and do what you've been doing on your practice tests. And yeah, eventually one of those official tests is going to 
reflect what your practice tests reflected. Okay, last thing on this. You just said there's randomness, and I hope she embraces that. But it also could be straight up nerves, right? We don't want them to have nerves. We want them to treat the official test like another practice test, but sometimes people don't, right? Yeah. But that's why you take it multiple times because then you're going to come back in the ring and you're like, hey, I've been here before. I got nervous. I don't have to do that. I can learn from that and I can try again. And that's those are the people who score higher. And that's why you take your practice test seriously. Yep. That's why you take many, many practice tests so that you can just get over this idea that any one trial really matters that much. It doesn't. Only the best one is going to count. You've got multiple chances at it. You can't control it. You don't know whether today is going to be the day. So you just play your game. And if things break well for you today, then great. Maybe that's going to be your high score on record. But if not, these, there's a second attempt and a third attempt and a fourth attempt and <laughs> a fifth attempt and a seven time lifetime maximum and an appeals process after that. So if this is something that you really want to do, you're just going to exhaust all of those attempts until you finally get something that reflects your ability. Also, it's important to note here that this does not mean that you should just go take it to see how you do. You should not take it if your practice tests don't indicate you're ready to take it. I mean, if your practice tests are not showing you a score that you would happily apply to law school with, then you should not ever waste one of your official attempts. Um, sometimes people think, oh, well, I've got all these official attempts at it. Why would I even practice? Well, because it might take you three or six months or nine months or a year or two years of doing these practice tests. Uh, we have 100 of them available in the LSAT Demon, and it sometimes takes people a long time to really learn what's going on with this test and get their practice test scores into that range that then justifies them to take the official test. Excellent. This next question is from the ask button. I just want to tell listeners who are new to the show what that is. So if you sign up for an LSAT Demon account, you can get a free one. You will go in and you will start doing official LSAT questions. And then as soon as you do a question, you'll have the opportunity to review it. You can read our explanations or watch video explanations. Um, but if those explanations aren't good enough for you, or you think there's something that needs to be clarified or refined, you can hit the ask button. That's what we're talking about. You can hit the ask button and somebody on our team will get back to you within 24 hours. And here's a question that we got to the ask button and the ask team forwarded it on to us because they thought it might be a good question for the show. It just says, what is the best way to identify the main conclusion in reading comprehension passages? So <laughs> when the question is framed, is what is the best way to do so? And I, I'm thinking of multiple things that are happening to help you identify the main conclusion. For starters, you're going to read each and every sentence and make sense of it. Yeah. I don't even like the, the, the phrase main conclusion in reading comp passages. I think it would be better to say main point or even main idea because reading comp passages are not structured as formally as logical reasoning passages are structured. Logical reasoning passages frequently are going to have three sentences. One of them is the thing that they're trying to conclude. 
Two of those are meant to be evidence in favor of that conclusion. And on logical reasoning, you need to treat the main conclusion as essentially bullshit, right? I think you're trying to force this conclusion on me from these facts, but you have to treat the facts as if they're solid plated gold, you know, like they came down from the mountain on the stone tablets. Like these are, this is just, we're not arguing with that shit. Okay. So on LR, it's different on LR. It's like, well, some of this is meant to be evidence. And one of these things is meant to be their main point. And I'm going to tell them why, even if their evidence is true, their main conclusion does not necessarily have to be true. On reading comp, there's a lot more there. Sure. There are some passages, right, that have a main point, that have a main conclusion, that the author is trying to explicitly prove that singular idea. But in a lot of cases, it might just be an informative piece where there's really two or three main ideas or yeah. pieces of information that the author is trying to convey, or there is uh, maybe two main points. Yeah, and it, it's and it much doesn't softer need to be loose. stated explicitly. It's not the type of thing where you can just underline. You know, the worst. <laughs> throw away any reading comprehension book that tells you something like under underline the main idea of the passage. Yeah, or underline the main idea of the paragraph. It's like. Huh? How do you know what the main idea of the paragraph or the passage is? You haven't read the whole passage yet. You don't yeah. know what the main idea of the passage is yet. And they don't even have to state it explicitly. It can kind of emerge, right? It's like the whole vibes of the of the passage. What are they talking about? What do they seem to want here? Watch out for little editorializations, right? They can throw in these adjectives or adverbs where they 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 be they like sort of tip their hand, right? They show, oh, wait a second. Here's what you're trying for. You know, I want to talk about your use of the word emerge just a second ago, because I think people can misinterpret this in two different ways. I agree 100%. After I read a reading comp passage, again, it's only 15, 16 sentences. I'm looking away from the page, right? Yeah. And I'm like, okay. So at the end of the day, dear author, this is what you want me to walk away with. And it may be two or three short sentences. Like, and I'm, I'm, it was funny, just yesterday in class, we did a reading comp passage and I got to the end and I described in my own words what I thought the main point was. Then I described it again using totally different words. And then I actually ended up, for whatever reason, maybe through the discussion or whatever, described it again, again, using different words. And people might get confused by that, but it's like I, I said, there's one central idea here that I'm trying to convey, and I'm just describing that in different ways with different words. But that emerged from the passage and it centers over the passage, right? I'm not, I don't want people to think that we're inferring from the passage some sort of new information or going off in a new direction, right? This is this is all still centered and directly tied back to the text in the passage. It's nothing new. I'm not making anything up here, but it is something stated in my own words that is a lot clearer and shorter than what the original passage said. Yeah, it's like you're distilling it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And exactly. so it's not like picking it out of the passage like, oh, right here is their main point. You're not doing that. 
you're you're thinking about what they said. I mean, yeah, I, my eyes keep going to the ceiling because I'm looking away from the passage and I'm going, well, you know, really the point of this document, the reason why you gave me these 14 sentences is because you're trying to convince me that whatever. And maybe they did say it explicitly, but frequently they did not say it explicitly. And it's just kind of going to be this like, well, having thought about it, I know what the passage contained and the overall I the overall attitude, what they're really going for here is they're they're trying to convince me of X and then you state it in your own words. Yes. And you can only do that process. You can only take all of the information from the passage and then distill it into this. Su- I don't, I don't want to say summary, but this, this main point, this main idea, if you've understood each of the parts as you read it, right? So if you read carefully and understand and track where the author is going as you read it, then you're in a position to do that. If people read que- quickly or whatever, then people, they can't do that. And that's why they're like, well, I need to go to these other strategies. I need to underline the the main point, or I need to find the premises, or I need to read for structure. It's like, no, you can't do this final, somewhat a little challenging for people at first, right? Step, if you haven't done the heavy lifting up front and really read and understood each sentence. Being skeptical can help because when they say something that seems objectionable at all, or when Mm. they just continually ask the author, really, how do you know that? Sometimes they're just going to state facts. Like sometimes it's going to be like in 1840, so-and-so wrote a book called blah, blah, blah. How do you know that? Well, I don't know, but I trust that you do know that. Sure. And I'm not going to really question your knowledge, the history that you're presenting to me in this passage. Yeah. But other times they're going to say that something is good or bad. This Mm -hmm. should or should not happen. And that's where you go, wait a second, what do you? who you're trying to tell me that this is that you're giving me a judgment now that this is good. Well, how do you know what's good? Where's your definition of good? Or this is an example from uh, logical reasoning, uh, which logical reasoning skills can absolutely help you in reading comprehension. We had um, a passage in LR yesterday where the first sentence said something along the lines of unemployment will soon go down. And then it immediately kept going with more, mm-hmm. more stuff. And there's two types of people. There, there's the people who are going to just read that unemployment will soon go down and they go, OK. And then they read the next sentence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's other people. And I would encourage you to be this other person. Other people go. Wait a second. You're making a prediction about the future. Mm-hmm. Unemployment will soon go down. Why? <laughs> how, how do you know that? Yeah. What's your evidence for that? And it turned out to be a sufficient assumption question. The second and third sentences were premises in support of that first sentence. There were no keywords, no thus, therefore, since, no, no guideposts. You know, they weren't telling you what their conclusion was. Sure. But if you had that skepticism to say, wait a second, how do you know that unemployment's going to go down in the future? Mm-hmm. Then it's easier for you to see that the second sentence was providing a reason why they think that's going to happen. And the third sentence was providing another reason why they think that was going to happen. And 
so I think, I guess the only thing I want to say here to this ask button question, well, the point I'm trying to make right now is maybe try to be a little bit skeptical as you're reading the passages, just like you are on LR, be a little skeptical on RC, because sometimes people are going to, they're going to say something where you go, wait, what? How do you know that though? And then if you tune into everything else that they're saying, you'll realize that they're giving you reasons for the thing that they had previously said, where you had kind of gone, scratched your head going, wait, what? And now they're giving you reasons for that. Well, okay. So they're giving me reasons for this thing. Then probably they're the thing they're trying to prove. The thing they're trying to sell me on is that thing that I was earlier a little skeptical about. Yeah. What do you think? We beat this one to death. I think we got the main point. (laughs) Ah, good one. I see what you did there. Next one is from David. The subject is sufficient versus necessary. And David is asking about the difference between mistaken reversals and mistaken negations, which already kind of like my, I want to give you a, a, this is, you're going to think I'm being a smart ass, David, but I, I really want to tell you probably stop thinking about this. Just don't even worry about it. Um, the words mistaken reversal and mistaken negation have never appeared on the law school admission test. These are ideas that you got from some LSAT book or some LSAT tutor somewhere. They very rarely need to be discussed. And you're probably struggling a lot because you think that this issue is more important than it actually is. Yeah, when push comes to shove, just to give some numbers here, when push comes to shove, I think there are two, maybe one, but I think two logical reasoning questions that hinge on the difference between a mistaken reversal and a mistaken negation. I'm surprised it's not more than that. I thought that I maybe it was just because of the books that I used to teach from. At the beginning of my career, I was a power score teacher and there were questions in the power score books where it was like a parallel reasoning question and the correct, there would be a wrong answer that was a mistaken reversal and a correct answer that was a mistaken negation. And I used to start yelling about it, right? I used to be like, I wish LSAC would stop testing this because it's the same fucking, it's the same, it's the same flaw. So stop testing it. But now you're telling me that they really only have done this a couple times. I feel like there's only two. I mean, I'm thinking one, I know for sure one, but I think two where the, I'm saying the correct answer hinges on that distinction. In all other cases where these things are happening, the others are clearly wrong because they're wrong just, for other reasons. All, and so, yeah, they're wrong. And that's not actually being tested in that context. It might be that the power score book I was teaching from actually because they are so heavy handed on formal logic and because they wanted to make a lesson about mistaken reversals versus and mistaken negations, they could have actually been misunderstanding the question because there could have been wrong answers that were just wrong for some other reason. And they're going off about how, Oh, that's a mistaken reversal. Oh, look, that's what, that's why it's wrong. It's like, no, it's not even the the same kind of reasoning. Completely other reason. Yeah. Don't even worry about that. Yeah. You want to read David's question though? Sure. David says, my confusion, my confusion stems from knowing the difference between Mistakes a sufficient condition for a necessary condition to reach the conclusion versus mistakes a necessary condition for a sufficient condition to reach the conclusion. Those phrases were also never on the LSAT. I mean, like his he's he's using quotation marks, right? 
but I don't think yeah. it has ever said mistakes a sufficient condition for a necessary condition to reach the conclusion. I don't think that those words have ever appeared yeah, on I don't the think law school admission either. test in that order. Yeah. Usually, well, usually what it says is mistakes a sufficient condition for something with a necessary condition for the same thing. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I, I just skimmed ahead into the, the the remainder of David's email makes it clear what he's doing wrong. You want to read the rest of this? Sure. Are all mistaken reversals mistakes and necessary for sufficient and all mistaken negations mistakes and sufficient for necessary Many forms state that a mistaken reversal is when you mistake a necessary condition for a sufficient condition and the mistaken negation is the opposite. Is that always the case? Oh, wow. You're really down a rabbit hole that, um, one, you're not, this is not correct. Um, Yeah. Get off of these forums. Your problem is that you're on these forums. You're wasting your fucking time, David. You're, you're nerding out on you're just you guys are all of you. Anybody in this forum who is having these discussions, I guarantee you're not improving as fast as you could because you're wasting your time talking about technicalities with people who are claiming to be experts who are, in fact, not. Well, you got two problems, right? You said you're not improving as fast as you could. You could actually be going backward because now <laughs> you you're probably your focus going is backward. on this. Right. Yes. Like you're you're answering a question you're like, wait a sec, is this necessary for sufficient or sufficient? It's not a thought that either of us are having as we're reading a question in which yeah. the argument confused sufficient for necessary. That's all we care about that. We're done. That's yeah. it. So come to our classes. Use the LSAT demon. This issue never comes up or Ben says maybe once in 5,000 logical reasoning questions, maybe twice in 5,000 logical reasoning questions. In other words, you don't need to give one shit about this ever. I guarantee you do not need to know this to score in the high 170s. You don't need to know anything about this. And so this is a perfect opportunity for you to just say, great, enjoy your discussion there on your forum. I'm out. I'm going to go do real LSAT questions because I'm, this is just not going to be something that I'm ever going to have to care about. Um, well, technically, and I would add, go ahead. Sorry, really quick. Even in those two examples, it's much easier to understand why the correct answer is correct by simply looking at what a mistaken negation is and saying, see how they did that here. You can get to the correct answer without understanding this terminology. Yeah. And and even worse, this other stuff that he's going into about confusing, sufficient for necessary, it's, yada, yada. It's two technical variations on the exact same flaw, which is just fucking up conditional reasoning. Like you just don't understand how conditional reasoning works. And yeah. so, you know, real simple example. If you have a ticket, then you can be admitted to the game. That does not mean the same thing as if you are admitted to the game, you have to have a ticket. I think that that's technically a mistaken reversal or that's what people who talk about this that's shit, which does not reversal. include me yeah. and does not include yeah. Ben. People yeah. who would talk about this would call that a mistaken reversal. But it's the exact same thing as saying if you don't have a ticket, you can't go to the game. That's a mistaken negation. Yeah. Again, yeah. words we would never say. Yep. So because you made the same mistake and because people do this instantaneously, when you really start to understand the test intuitively versus sort of this heavy handed formulaic way, people will naturally say, oh, OK, so if 
so what was it? If you have a ticket, you can go to the game, right? If you have a ticket, you can be admitted to the game. Okay, so if you can't go to the game, then you must not have a ticket because the rule said if you had one, you would be able to go. Which is the contrapositive, which is valid logical reasoning. Contrapositive is also a word that we really don't say. We but, don't say. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, you know, technically correct. It's just two different ways of saying the same thing. If you have a ticket, you can go to the game. Okay. Well, then if you can't go to the game, you must not have a ticket. It's common fucking sense. And that's my point is that people just naturally say that and they don't even realize that they've found the contrapositive. And they don't that's realize where we want that, you to get. That's where yeah. we want you to get. So you're but just people, like fluid with the test. You're conversational then, with the logic. People who who are on these forums go, yeah, but which one is the sufficient though? And which one is the necessary? Uh, yeah. And it's like, I don't, what? I don't know. If you have a ticket, you can go to the game. So if you can't go to the game, then that means you don't have a ticket. And it doesn't mean that if you're at the game, you had to have a ticket because people, what if you're playing in the game? What if you are, what if you have a lifetime pass? What if you sneak in? What you yeah. dug a tunnel under the stadium? I don't know. There's other ways potentially to get into the game. And, and that's why it's not correct to say either. And I'm not even going to say it bother saying them, but it's not correct to make those logical errors, either the mistaken negation or the mistaken reversal is just stop saying those words, <laughs> get off of those forums. Never think about this stuff again. I mean, I think sometimes people can't believe nerds who are super into this type of shit. They look at LSAT demon reviews and they go, well, wait, it's not even possible that people could be improving by 25 points on the law school admission test. So that's just not possible. You guys must be fake. No, it's real. And the reason why it's real is because we tell you to ignore stupid bullshit like this and just understand the test in much simpler ways. We don't harp on these dumbass technicalities. We we focus on the stuff that really matters. And that's where, you know, instead of scraping out one or two points worth of improvement, we're going to give you 10 or 20 points of improvement because we're going to get you to focus on how easy the test actually is instead of focusing on these weird. This is weird, logical technicalities and words that have literally never even appeared on the test. Hey, I want to tell you about a, an analogous situation. Well, I think it's analogous and I want to see what you think. Okay. I'm teaching Kyle how to drive manual. Ah, cool. And he's a very technical kid and he wants to know, hey, at what RPMs oh. should I put in the clutch? <laughs> Stop looking at the, you do not need to look at the tachometer, Kyle. Don't look at the tach. Listen, just feel it. That's what you're going to say, right? Yeah, that's what I've been telling him. I'm like, I, I, I do notice, Kyle, that I tend to go up higher RPMs than you do but I want you to just feel it and hear it because when you feel and hear it, it's going to just start coming naturally as opposed to always looking down and relying on that yeah, because there's then no answer. you're not, you're not, you're not hearing that other feedback. Yeah. Right. And then when you're driving, what you're going to be looking up at the road and then looking down, looking down, like it's a very, uh, robotic, um, yeah. disjointed well, way of thing, learning how to drive. He's not understanding is that it's perfectly acceptable to drive 50 miles an hour at 3000 RPMs, 4000 RPMs, 5000 RPMs, or 2000 RPMs. You're going to yeah. get different performance from the vehicle at all of those different levels. 
You don't yeah. even need to look at the tachometer. You can hear it. You can feel it in the gas pedal. If you you're feel running the it, sluggishness, yeah. Yeah, yep. if you're running it higher, then it's the car is going to be acting sportier. Like if you hit yeah. the gas, it's going to go. And if you're running it at a real low RPM, if you're, the engine's not making any noise at all, then you're going to hit the gas and it's going to very slowly pick up this pace. And it's there's not a right answer. It's just how do you want it to feel while you're driving? Yeah. I do think it's analogous. I'm trying to figure out why it's analogous. Well, it's just you're trying to teach him how to really understand it. And he's well, trying to like memorize it. some rubric for that, that like won't serve him. Well, I mean, hey, what does he do when he gets in a different car? Yeah, it's like it, the different car that you're driving. You're, you could be driving like a tractor or something. It does not perform the way that this sports car or family car, sedan, whatever you're driving, like they're going to be completely different. So if you think like, oh, I have to memorize a table of how many RPMs to shift. You're missing the point entirely. I mean, you it can be done. You can you can start to learn. You're like, OK, I'm going to shoot for three thousand for this acceleration, four thousand for this acceleration, five thousand for that acceleration. But when I'm on a hill, I'm going to go for higher to get the same performance. You can do it. It's just very. Um, what is it? Cognitively draining, right? It's oh like God. an analytical process versus like let go of all that and start to feel I mean, I know it sounds funny to say that, but that's what you're also doing on the test. You're hearing these sentences and then you're trying to understand them intuitively so you can feel <laughs> what is correct and what is incorrect. It's also extremely more dangerous. I mean, you're going to be looking at the tachometer instead of looking at the road. That's, that's not what you want to be doing. Yeah. You, you want to be feeling it. Look, you start off in first gear. At a certain point, the, you're going to hear that the car is going, the, the engine is revving really high. Okay. Yeah. If it doesn't feel comfortable to you, go ahead and shift it to second and see how that feels. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if you try to start it in fifth, it's going to stall. Oh, okay. Well, I guess you needed a lower gear then because the car's not working at that, <laughs> at that, in that gear. So you need a lower gear to get moving. Um, it's easier than he thinks. Yeah. No, he's doing great. No, I mean, but that's exactly what we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, is he going to have a manual transmission car for his first car? I did. Yes. The, uh, <laughs> the oldest beat up car is the manual. So Perfect. Cool. I figured it out immediately. I had a used Chevy S10 pickup. It was a 1988 Chevy S10 pickup. No air conditioning, mm -hmm. no stereo, no power, anything. And I basically, it was like, well, I had to learn how to drive stick or else I wasn't going to go anywhere. Yeah. And so I just taught myself how to learn. I just, I, I <laughs> my dad, I think gave me like, you know, once around the block or something. And it's like yeah. first gear, second gear. Okay, cool. Bye. <laughs> you're <Yeah>. good. <laughs> you're you're going to fuck it up a couple of times, but whatever, you know, keep your eye on the road. You're not going to crash. You're going to stall. And that's the worst that's going to happen. Excellent. Yeah, here's another ask button question. Abigail sent this one in. Um, oh, wait, it's a submission slash testimonial. You want to read it? Sure. When I read this argument, my initial response was to first diagram. Oh, sorry. When I read this argument, my initial response was to first diagram. I was like, ah, crap. So many conditionals here. I got out a pen and paper and was like, I'm ready. But then randomly voices in my head from the demon team were whispering, just understand it intuitively. Oh, shit. This is like what we were just talking about. 
Okay. I don't know if I should seek mental help for hearing voices or what, but I said F it and put down the pen, gave it a good read, sat with it, translated it into my own words, predicted what a good answer would look like. And voila, what do you know? My prediction was listed three exclamation points on a level four question two, two exclamation points like what? The old me would be trying some hard, confusing diagramming, but like I genuinely understood what I read and actually nailed it, exclamation point. Insert clapping emoji. I think I caught a a glimpse of how easy the LSAT can be, exclamation point. Just had to share. I know it's dumb, LOL, but I was proud of myself for resisting confusing methods and trusting y'all's advice and trusting myself. And boy, that could not be a more perfect endorsement of the exact conversation that we were just having for 20 minutes. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. Maybe Eric, like Eric might together. actually think about these when he creates yeah. our <laughs> agendas, unlike how I used to do it, which was just throw all the questions on the agenda. Thank you, Eric. That was excellent. That is perfect. Yes. We are going to show you how easy the LSAT can be. And it's mostly going to be forget all of that technical bullshit that you have previously learned. It's easier than all that. Yeah. Last one, huh? Oh, Listener Robert apparently settled our bet. Ben, do you remember exactly what our bet was? I mean, it was about the divorce rate for high school sweethearts. I don't remember exactly. I think I thought they would. You thought they were more likely to divorce. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe not. I took the over. Whatever it was, I definitely took the over. And listener Robert has settled our bet. Uh, The divorce rate for high school sweethearts is 54% within the first 10 years of marriage. The divorce rate for average American couples in the year of the study was 32%. So high school sweethearts do divorce at a much higher rate than the average American couple. It then says high school sweethearts who make it past 10 years, though, usually stay long, stay together longer than average couples. I guess average couples who make it past 10 years, obviously, right? Otherwise, that makes no sense, which is kind of interesting. (laughs) Yeah, that is interesting. I guess we needed to clarify more specifically what we meant. Divorce rate after what time frame? But okay, after 10 years. Well, you owe me. um, I can't remember what we bet. You you can buy me a cup of coffee next time I see you and we'll call it square. Sounds good. Yeah, we'll do it. (laughs) Be LSAT famous. Ask questions or share news with us at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, email help at lsatdemon.com. Check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode 405 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. <laughs>